Well, good morning, everyone. I'll go through an exercise with you this morning. I have a conversation, text conversation that I had with somebody this week or in recent weeks, and I want you to tell me who I'm talking to and what we're talking about. You ready? Wait, who is this? I vaguely remember your name, but I can't place your face. Just kidding. Last home game on Thursday. We really do miss you guys. Nope, doesn't ring a bell. We would love that. Let me confirm on Tuesday. We have something with Grant's cello that we need to get more information on, but we want to do it if possible. I'll let you know. Have a nice trip. Awesome. The game is at 6.30. What if we meet at Panda Express at 5.45? Terry has to drop Grant off at 5.30. How about 5.30? Can y'all get there early? Okay, we'll do the same. We just arrived. Thanks so much for coming. We sure missed you both. Always enjoy spending time together. All right. <laughs> Who was I talking to? Nobody? What was, maybe, my parents, that's a good guess. What were we talking about? Making plans. You, you might be able to just kind of take some clues from the context and say, well, you're talking to somebody you know, somebody that you want to spend time with, that, but they've been gone recently. Um, you're making arrangements to go to an event, uh, in this case, Graham's game, and so they have an interest in your family and spend time with Graham. Graham. So you may not know exactly who I'm talking about, and the reason is that I only gave you one side of the conversation. <laughs> and so it's real hard to tell, and the best we can do is make some guesses on the context of what we know to be true based on what you know about me, because you got my side of the conversation, and just about my life and who I spend time with and what that looks like just so I don't leave you hanging, I was talking to Todd and Tessa Naff about time that we might get together to go watch Graham's game and have dinner beforehand because they've been out of town and we've really been looking forward to, to grabbing some time together. So that's what that was all about. But I wanted to give you that as an illustration because we have a similar challenge in our passage this morning. That Paul is having a conversation with somebody, but we only have one side of the conversation, his side. But yet we can still look at the context of what we've learned in this letter so far to kind of give us an idea about what might be going on. For example, we can know that this letter was from Paul to the church in Corinth. Sounds kind of obvious, but that's an important context that we need to keep in mind when we're trying to solve this puzzle. You'll recall back in chapter 3, verse 5, that these are people that he had a specific acquaintance with talks about how he and Apollos, that they were servants through whom you, the church, believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. The point there is that Paul had a personal acquaintance with these people that he's writing to. And he's encouraging them in the first of the letter, affirming their faith. If you'll remember in chapter 1, verse 6, he said, Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking any gift. Um, Excuse me, I lost my place. So that you're not lacking any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who also confirms you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these are people who have come to faith in Christ through the ministry of Paul and Apollos and men like him. Men that Paul has a, and women that Paul has a direct relationship with because of that time that they spent together. But you'll recognize in verse 10, he goes on to confront an issue. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
be made complete in the same mind and in the same way, that you agree with each other and that there be no divisions among you. So Paul's well acquainted with this audience. He has a personal relationship with them because of a shared experience that they've had together. And he's heard some information about things going on in this church that are concerned to him, primarily divisions that have begun to occur. You'll remember over the last couple of weeks, Paul goes on to use illustrations to talk about the importance of who they are as a body. Talked about how God's people are, are God's field. And, and, and the Lord is at work producing a harvest of faith among those people. How God's people are God's building. And within that building, the very presence of God dwells in and through his people. But then in chapter 4, Paul narrows his attention to specific individuals who threaten the goal of this body of Christ, who have been commissioned to take that redeeming message of salvation in Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the world. But there are those creating divisions within the Corinthian church who threaten that mission. And so in chapter 4, Paul's going to direct his attention specifically to those individuals. Problem is, we don't know their names. We don't know specifically who they are. But like the example I gave you, nobody knew what I was talking about in the text conversation that I only gave you one side of, except the people I, were talk I was talking to. They knew exactly who was a part of that conversation. And I believe in a similar way, the people who received this letter know exactly who Paul's talking about, and he doesn't have to call them by name. In fact, he's calling them out as leaders of these divisions without calling their name. And I think the way he does this, and I hope you see this as well as we walk through it together, is absolutely brilliant. Because these are prideful people. And, and dealing with prideful people is like dismantling a bomb. You want to be very careful that you choose your words wisely so that thing doesn't explode in front of everybody. Because if you've ever confronted prideful people, you know what a typical reaction is. They immediately get defensive. They're ready to fight. But they're not going to fight alone. They're going to rally troops. And they're going to make you convinced that this is us versus them. We've got to stand together. And that's the issue that Paul's dealing with in the Corinthian church. And so he's very careful about he, how he confronts what's happening. He chooses his words wisely. As we'll notice as we go through this passage together. He talks about how he'll use literary devices. Let me give you some examples. He'll use comparison and contrast. He'll use rhetorical questions. He'll use hyperbole. And everything that he's doing is very strategic to send a message without calling people by name. In a very real way, he's painting a picture of what a true disciple looks like. And as you'll see in the passage, he often points to himself. So that he's not pointing at other people. He's saying, here, let me give you an example from my own life. And as he paints this picture, the implied question is, this describes a disciple. Does this describe you? That's what Paul's doing. And so as we work through this passage together, I want to challenge you. As he describes what a true disciple looks like, and he implies that question, let me encourage you to consider it for it's yourself. Does this describe you? See what you think when we walk through this together. Let me pray for our time. Father, as we do spend time in your word, we recognize that your spirit has to be at work within us, that we can't see things unless you open our eyes, that we can't hear things unless you 
open our ears. And so we want to come with a heart of humility, a heart of surrender, a, a heart that desires your work in our lives to accomplish your good purposes. So, Father, I am grateful for the opportunity that we have to spend time in your word, and I pray that you use it for the good of your people and the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you will, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse uh, 1. And we're going to look at some passages together. And I put these on slides so that you can follow along. But if you have your Bible, please feel free to look them up there as well. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So we talked about how Paul is going to be painting this picture. What's important is to understand the model that he's going to use that we are supposed to compare our lives to. And we look at that in verse 1 where it says, let a man regard us in this manner. The us is the model. So who is the us? One thought might be, well, he's mentioned the people that these divisive groups have kind of rallied around. Paul and Cephas and Apollos. So it could be them. But I think more likely it's Paul and the other apostles. And the reason I say that is because these are men uniquely called by God as he describes them as servants of Christ and, and, and stewards of the mysteries of God. You'll remember when we talked about this idea of mysteries of God, we, we understood that a mystery is not something that is a hidden secret in this case. Because actually the mysteries are describing the plan of God that he has put in place before the world began. It's always existed. It's always been revealed. But I want you to think about a good mystery, whether you're reading a book or watching a show. A good mystery always keeps you intrigued, anticipating something, and then there's that moment where all of a sudden something happens and you say to yourself, I never saw that coming. That's a good mystery, isn't it? Well, the gospel is that part of the story that you look at and you say, I never saw that coming. Because here we've had this problem that's existed all along. And that is this problem of how sinful man is to have a relationship with a holy God. The mystery is how is this going to be solved so that we can be in the right relationship that we were ultimately created for. The surprising twist that nobody saw coming was that he who knew no sin would become sin on our behalf. That the very creator God would become the sacrifice that was sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. That's the place in the story of God's narrative that we look at and go, wow, I didn't see that one coming. 
it's important to understand that that's the message, that mystery of who Christ is and what he came to do that Paul and the other apostles have committed their lives to. He said earlier in this letter, I know only one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he's come to reveal. He along with the other apostles. Remember I told you he's going to choose the words he speaks very carefully to make a point, to send a message. Even this word servant that he uses in that passage, very a servant of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. That word servant literally means under rower. It's the only time Paul uses this specific Greek word in all of his writings. And I believe there's a reason for it. The word under rower comes from a ship called the Triene. Do you have a picture of that? This is a, a, a ship that existed within the time which Paul lived. And if you'll see, it's kind of hard to tell, but these are ships that were uh, moved by a series of rowers. And actually three levels, about 30 on a row, one stacked on top of the other. The very bottom level was called the under rower. Now, the under rowers were an important part of the way the ship worked, but they had a unique position because you might be able to see here, those on top had a great view. <laughs> they could see everything going on. The under rowers are underneath everything, and they can't see a thing. In fact, the hole that the oar comes out of is just above waterline. So it's soggy and wet, dismal down there. The other thing I want you to notice, you see that little face-looking thing on the front? They didn't have big artillery guns during that time. So what they would do is they would build up speed as all these rowers moved this boat, and then they would ram into another boat. Guess where that is going to hit? Right at the under row. So what Paul is saying here is a true disciple takes the lowest place. The place that's not always the most comfortable. The place that is not out of peril. In fact, it's the place where things usually happen. He says, as a servant, as a true disciple, that's the place you take. He goes on and uses the word steward. A steward is an employee who's held responsible for managing money or goods of his boss. And, and we see that all throughout Scripture. You see, these divisive teachers were trying to find that upper row seat. They were in the process of collecting all this praise and prestige for themselves. And Paul says, no. A true disciple takes the low place. A, a true disciple gives what God has given them away to other people. They don't collect it for themselves might remember the parable that Jesus told about the, the talents. Remember the one that was a good and faithful, there were actually a couple that were good and faithful servants. And what they did is they took what God had, or their master had given them. It's an analogy of, of what God has given us. And they invested it in the lives of other people to produce a harvest of faith for their master. And that's what God calls us to do, is to, to take what God has given us and to give it away as we invest in other people's lives. Not pull it in for ourselves. So, in those two very simple words, Paul is communicating a very clear message. He's painting a picture of a true disciple, and he's implying the question, does this describe you? And then, instead of pointing to others, Paul then points to himself, and he says, let me explain to you how I determine if I'm being a faithful steward. He says, first of all, I don't look to you, church in Corinth, 
for my approval. My ultimate goal, even though I care for you, is not to meet your needs. These relationships are important, but it's not who I'm working for. I'm working to do things that God has called me to do, to be faithful to His purposes, and I believe that involves relationships, but my goal is not to please you. My goal is to please God. He goes on and says, in fact, I don't want to look for approval in any human court. My goal is to not look good in the eyes of men because he knows what would happen, as is happening in the church in Corinth. The greater the magnitude of the people you're trying to please, the lower you've got to bring your standard to make everybody happy. And he says, I'm not willing to do that. In fact, I want to honor God and please Him and trust that His good work will be accomplished in my life just as He intends. But he says, I don't even trust myself. See, Paul recognizes, like all of us do, that we've got blind spots. That we've got things that, that are easy for us to justify. Behaviors, repeated patterns that we make excuses about. And Paul may be even thinking back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, when he says, before he had come to faith in Christ, there was a point in my life when I examined myself against Scripture and I found myself to be blameless. It's as if I'm in control, my assessment isn't always right. Only God knows the hidden places of my heart. Only God knows the real motive behind my actions. So Paul's saying, the goal of a true disciple is not to look good in the eyes of men. The goal of a true disciple is to be faithful in the eyes of God. He's using that comparison and contrast. He's painting a picture, and he's then asking us, does this describe you? It's not about what you gain for yourself. Being a true disciple means you're being faithful with what God has given you investing in the lives of others it's not about getting a front row seat in fact you take the lowest place as a true disciple considering the needs of others is more important than your own it's not about pleasing men looking good in the eyes of others this is about honoring God bringing glory to him being faithful to what he's called you to do it's an interesting illustration true story about a woman who played for the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. She was uh, approached after a, a concert and was interviewed by a reporter, and it, it was an interesting question. The reporter asked this woman, he said, uh, so tell me, what's it like to, at the day of your performance, have a, a standing ovation by the crowd, only to find the next morning the criticism of things written in the newspaper? <laughs> and her answer was equally as interesting. She said, I've learned not to pay attention to the applause or be disappointed by the critics. I've learned to look at only the conductor because he's the only one who knows exactly what I'm supposed to do in the orchestra that he directs. See, God is the conductor. He's the only one that knows what each and every one of us have been called to do. And, and our eyes should be on Him with our desire to do what is right in His eyes. To follow His direction. That's what a true disciple looks like. The question is, does that describe you? Well, Paul goes on. Let's see how he continues in verse 6. 
Verse 6, he says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. But who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Remember, I told you Paul's going to use these literary devices. The, the first thing he did was this comparison and contrast. Now he's going to use rhetorical questions to make his point. He goes back again to himself, and he and Apollo specifically, and he's talking about that partnership that he's already alluded to in the letter so far. You remember in that analogy that he gave of God's field, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is who causes the growth. Only God can make truth come alive in someone's life. But Apollos and I, we are one. And we talked about what he's saying there is that we are dependent upon one another. If you don't have a seed in the ground, it doesn't do any good to water. And if you plant a seed and there's no water, it can't grow. And so what we do together is connected. We are dependent upon one another. Our mission is ultimately dependent upon our unity. In fact, no one person is superior to the other. Do you see where he's going with this? He's saying, essentially, our differences don't diminish our worth. Our worth is made possible because of our differences. You see, the way God designed it is that we all have a part to play. And not one is more superior than the others. I need you to do your part so that what I do has an effect in God's plan. You need me. We need one another. We are dependent upon one another. God's design is a unity within diversity where no one part is more important than the other, but it's the collective work that makes the difference. And so Paul makes that point and then asks the rhetorical question. So then, who made you superior? Who made you distinct if the son of man jesus himself came not to be served but to serve why should it be any different for you you see if a true disciple is truly a disciple then they are dependent upon one another why are you working so hard to be distinctive from each other which is why he goes on to say after all what do you have that you didn't receive. Chapter 1, we read that according to God's grace, they have every gift, everything that they might possibly need to carry out the purpose of God. God has given them everything they need to be faithful to what he's called them to do. So what do you have that you didn't receive from him? And then that third question, so why do you feel so compelled if everything you have is given by him, to take so much credit for yourself? Whose kingdom, really, honestly, are you trying to build? Is it your kingdom or God's kingdom? See, Paul is confronting the individualism of these leaders of these splinter groups that have developed within the church through these rhetorical questions. 
Because you're trying to be distinct. But a true disciple is dependent. You're trying to find success based on popularity. But a true disciple knows that success is ultimately based on faithfulness. You're trying to pursue a prideful ambition. But a true disciple has a commitment to humble submission. He's very careful to call them out without calling them by name. This is what a true disciple looks like. Does this describe you? Now look at what he says in verse 8. He says, you're already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings, is that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all. As men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this very hour, this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless, and we toil working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try not to give back, to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Paul makes this point in the beginning by using contrast. And then he goes and asks rhetorical questions, and here he uses hyperbole. We know what a hyperbole is. It's using an exaggerated statement to make a point. But that statement is not to be taken literally. It's like saying, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Well, you're not going to eat a horse. It's just describing how hungry you are. Or kids, you may have heard this before from your parents. I've told you a million times. Okay? For some of you, that may actually be true. But for most of us, that's an exaggeration to make a point. Well, Paul is essentially doing the same thing. Look at verse 8. This is what he's saying. Oh, look, you're already filled, rich, and you've become rulers. You've got everything this world has to offer. Personal success, peaceful living, popular appeal. Boy, I mean to tell you, you really are on the road to success Oh, but wait a second, there's only one problem. That's rarely what it looks like on the path of true discipleship. You see, you cannot be a friend to the world and a faithful follower of Christ. Paul, once again, turns to his own example as a reference of comparison. Now, I want you to notice here And understand that as he goes into this description, he's not trying to shame them. In fact, look at verse 14. Isn't that exactly what he says? I'm not writing this to shame you. I'm not saying these things to to make you feel bad. What he's doing here is he's correcting a wrong assumption. And that assumption is that the road to discipleship leads to the good life where you don't have any problems or cares and life just works out good for you, that's how you know when you're following God's plan. And he's saying, no, 
Actually, very often the opposite is true. Let me talk about my own life for a minute. In verse 9, he says, God has exhibited us as apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. Now, what's really fascinating about just that description Remember how we talked about Corinth being this kind of entertainment capital of the then-known world, and, and that they had these huge arenas? Well, in these arenas, they would have these gladiator battles where literally men condemned to death would be set out to fight, and, and the crowd would watch from a safe distance as these condemned people would fight wild animals, armed soldiers. Sometimes they would put them against their own relatives and make them fight to the death. Paul basically is using that imagery to paint a picture. His disciples are the spectacle, not the spectator. It's the wise of the world who are looking down on the fools for Christ's sake. God calls us to be in the arena, not in the crowd. As an apostle, you see, Paul was in a position to have really the highest level of authority within the Christian church. And those divisive leaders were hoping to have the same level of influence. But their life looked very different than Paul's. They were hoping to find that front row seat on the big banquet in their honor. And Paul says, you know, we're often hungry. They were hoping to dress in fine clothes so that everybody would understand how special they are and Paul says, look, I have hand-me-downs. You wouldn't be able to tell me from anybody else based on what I'm wearing. They were living in a nice home in comfortable surroundings, and Paul says, look, I don't even have a place to call home. We know that his life was a life of missionary journeys going from one place to another where he would stay for only the time needed until God called him to another place. He never settled in one place thinking that that was where he was going to be because he knew that God was moving him to take the message of the mysteries of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the uttermost parts of the world. So it's important to understand when Paul is listing these things out about his life, he's not saying, oh, woe is me. <laughs> See how bad my life is? Now, don't you feel bad? That's not what he's doing here. In fact, that's why he says, we return kindness in response to insults. We return blessing in response to persecution. See, if Paul was a bitter man, that's not what it would look like. He'd become angry, really frustrated with all these other people, and he's not able to do that. God, why have you dealt me such a, a bad hand? You see, the reason Paul wasn't bitter is because he understood as a true disciple that God never promised him the good life. He didn't see discipleship as a guarantee for a trouble-free life. Paul says, in fact, that our greatest intimacy with our Savior is often found in the fellowship of his suffering. The things that we seem to grow most in are often found in places of our deepest pain. Is that not true? That a true disciple looks at suffering in their life not as punishment, but as a gift that God uses to draw us closer to Him. Because you don't really understand how much you need Jesus until Jesus is all you have. This week I had a 
teachable moment with my son. He brought me a baseball card. And he said, Dad, is, is, this, is this a rare card? He always wants to know if there's something special about it. And I said, oh, son, this is a really special card. Jim Abbott was a ball player when I was playing baseball in high school. He said, look at his right hand. Isn't that weird, the way he's holding his glove? I said, do you know why? I said, he doesn't have a right hand. It's just a stub. He was born without a right hand. And yet, he became a highly successful Major League Baseball pitcher. So we went online to look at clips of the amazing things that this guy did because he would um, put the glove underneath his right arm and he would throw with his left arm. And then before the batter had time to hit the ball, he would have already taken that glove out, put it on his left hand so that he could feel the ball, put it back under, get that ball out, and make the throw to first base. You're thinking I'm making this up. You go look at it. It was an amazing sight to see what this man accomplished. After we watched several uh, clips of things that Jim Abbott did in his career, we saw a little uh, a speech that he gave to a group. And one of the things he said was that the disability he saw as a gift because it taught him how to have courage to overcome obstacles in his life that he would have never understood had he not had to work through that disability. And I think Paul is saying something very similar to us. Suffering as a true disciple sees it is a very meaningful part of life and not a meaningless interruption. We understand that suffering really is at the heart of the Christian story. When Isaiah speaks of the Messiah that would come and describes the life of Jesus, he says he's a man of sorrows, a man well acquainted with grief. Suffering is a part of the Christian story. And it's that time that we draw near to Christ as He draws near to us when we cling to Him when everything else doesn't make sense. And it's during those times that we get a glimpse of what is yet to come when He tells us, I'm not finished yet. This world is broken, but I will make all things new. Trust me. This is the heart that uh, Tim Keller had in mind. Listen to what he has to say. I put it up there because I want you to let these words sink in. He says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrow, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. For a true disciple, suffering is not a punishment. It's an opportunity to understand what it means to draw near and find refuge in the God of our salvation. Paul has worked diligently to use different literary devices to, to make sure that he doesn't call people by name, but uses his own life as an example, painting this portrait of what a true disciple's life should look like. And the implication is, does this describe you? So let's go back to that challenge from the very beginning. And let me ask you, does it describe you? And to unpack that a little bit, let's look at those three things that Paul spoke about. The first one was faithfulness. Being a faithful servant. I think the question that would be good to ask yourself here is this. Are you the spectacle or the spectator? 
Are you in the arena or watching from a safe distance? The idea here is that a true disciple invests their lives in the heart of discipleship among people. So as a parent, your goal is not to simply raise your kids so that they're protected from the world around them. Your goal is to raise up disciples in Jesus Christ who are faithful to follow him in a world that rejects him. We're going to have baptisms today. And every single one of the stories includes the influence of family that revealed to them what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I feel certain that they didn't promise them that it's the road to the good life. I trust that they were honest enough to say that this doesn't mean that everything's going to fall into place. What it does mean is when things go wrong, you have a place to go to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. A true disciple invests their lives in discipleship. Parents to children, older men and women to younger men and women. So as we look across this church body, we have the blessing of a vast demographic, young and old and all in between. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we investing our lives in discipleship? Are we in the arena pouring ourselves into the lives of others for the sake of Jesus Christ in the mission that he's given us to do as a body of Christ? Are you faithful? The next thing is humility. Paul says that to determine whether he was doing what God has called him to do, he was careful not to look at other Christians as if that were the standard that he needs to compare himself against. He also didn't look at the world, and I think that's important because there's a tendency that we have to justify ourselves by always finding something less than us, right? Because then we can look real good as long as we find somebody who's not quite as good. So how do you know? Do do you look at yourself and say, I think I'm doing pretty good? So do you look at other Christians? Do you look at the world around you? Do you make that decision yourself? I think Paul is trying to help us understand that that there is an authenticity that should exist in the life of a disciple who is faithful to go to God's word and let that light shine into his heart to expose those hidden places where sin hides and be a people of confession. That passage in 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Go look at that series of passages and what you're going to find is a contrast between those who are walking in the light and those who are walking in the darkness. Those who say they love Christ but yet don't walk in faithfulness and those who claim to follow him and are faithful to follow him. And what it says, if you walk in the light, you will be a people of confession because that light always exposes areas that we fall short and gives us the grace to understand where we find forgiveness so that we can be built up and strengthened to carry out the mission that God's called us to. How do you measure yourself? Are you humble? This next weekend, I'm going to go spend some time with a group of guys that I've known since the mid-'80s, men that I have uh, lived a lot of life with. And every year for the past 22 years, we have come together and completely opened our lives up to one another. We essentially take our journal and we say, here's what's happened over the last 12 months. These are places that I've really seen God work in my heart. These are places where I've really failed. The great thing about this exercise is that over the years, these men sometimes know my blind spots better than I do. They can see patterns better than I can. 
And I've invited them to speak into my life to help me live a life faithfully following Christ. We've committed to each other. We're going to do this until the Lord calls us home. Because it's that important to be faithful and humble before the Lord. Being a true disciple requires authenticity with your own heart before God and in your relationships with one another. You can't live true discipleship if you hide within yourself. So be faithful, be humble. And the last thing is this attitude and suffering. See, I think we really understand where our heart is in moments of suffering. (laughs) We understand how faithful and humble we are when bad things happen. And we need to test ourselves as we go through those difficult times. And what's our response? Do we blame God? Or do we go to him because we trust him and we need him? But I think even as important as that is how we care for people who go through hard times. The question is, when somebody around you is suffering, do you enter in or do you stand apart? Started out was the best possible way to love their friends because they saw him in a heap of suffering. And it tells us that they went with him and they sat with him and they wept with him and they never said a word. They only got in trouble when they opened their mouth and tried to explain why he was going through such a hard time. So ask yourself, not only how you engage as you go through suffering, but how do you engage with others when they go through suffering? I tell you, the best way to love somebody is just to be with them, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Live faithful, live humble, endure suffering. And I think... That idea is something that we need to keep in mind. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about how we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. In other words, he wasn't living for what existed here. There was something yet future that he was living for. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. It tells us to to consider him who endured such hostility by sinners so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. It's our example in Christ that says, this is not the world we're living for. So don't be disappointed when bad things happen. Understand that God uses all things to draw us closer to himself and to allow us to understand his provision in ways that we never do when we live in a life of comfort. So be faithful, be humble, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Endure suffering so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. As we go to celebrate baptism, I want you to keep this picture in mind. Because these people that stand before you this morning, Kyla and Olivia and Corin, they've considered the cost. They've made a commitment to to follow Christ. They want to live that life of discipleship wherever the Lord leads them. And let's let that be a reflection on our heart as well. So if you're being baptized, if you want to come and uh, go to the rooms that apply, and then I'll pray for us, and uh, we'll close. God, I'm so grateful for the way your word so powerfully penetrates our heart. The way you and your light through your people and through your word reveals those hidden places where sin likes to hide so that we can be a people of confession 
recognizing where we fall short, but also understanding where we find forgiveness and redemption so that old things are gone and new things have come. Father, help us to be faithful in the eyes of God, our Savior, that we would fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would be humble, considering the low place, the place that's not always privileged, but instead is often dangerous and not very comfortable. Help us be faithful as we go through hard times, that we would draw near to you and know that you draw near to us, that as we are with those who are struggling, that we would stand with them, not speaking a word, but being available and weeping with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. Fathers, we hear this description of what a true disciple looks like. Help us to be honest with ourselves as we are authentic before you and before your people to know if that describes us. And may we be faithful to follow where you lead us to go. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.